The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. As I do every Sunday, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and open uh, with me to John chapter 11 in the New Testament. John 11, that's on page 897, and also we're looking at 898 because we're looking at the narrative of Lazarus this morning, actually, uh, as we have been through these summer months looking at hard questions. And we've been taking questions uh, from various perspectives and some that uh, come from one of either sides, perhaps questions that are asked about the Christian faith by those who do not believe the Christian faith. And so they are uh, more objections raised against the Christian faith, uh, hard questions. Or We've also been asking hard questions internally, that is, Christian believers asking questions about their own faith and really difficult things or issues that they've wrestled with. So these are questions from these multi-perspectival matters of difficulty, uh, and uh, we've seen different sorts. And let me just say that along the way, I've acknowledged to some of you that, that, that this has been difficult, and it makes sense that hard things would be difficult, but uh, not just difficult in terms of content, but actually quite uh, honestly, somewhat emotionally taxing too, because we've wrestled with some real difficult subjects, especially the last couple of weeks, so emotionally toilsome. Let me tell you that today is, is more of a fun, hard question, and I say that because it's, it's fun in the sense that, uh, that I think it's fun anyway, because we're, we're asking a question that I'm curious if you've ever thought about, uh, or if you haven't before, you may even be wondering, why, why does this topic even matter? As you look to the sermon title, and we see we're asking the question this morning of the uh, Lazarus narrative, resurrection or resuscitation? Resurrection or resuscitation, and this is a fun one, and you might wonder what, what is that all about in the first place. So let me give you a qualifier here on the front end, a very broad general qualifier before we get into the details introducing this narrative and then uh, read and pray. This qualifier statement is this, that a hallmark reality, a, a, a distinguishing reality of what we could call um, progressive readings of the Bible, or we could say People who read the Bible and don't believe the Bible sometimes read the Bible in a way that rejects the supernatural, that rejects supernatural interpretations of the Scripture, and that is called anti-supernatural bias. Anti-supernatural bias is reading the Bible and looking to explain away the clearly supernatural meaning of the text. Anti-supernatural bias is what that's called. I learned this from one of my professors, uh, Dr. Niehaus. And Dr. Niehaus became convinced of the Christian faith while doing his Ph.D. studies at Harvard University. He became a Christian in the context of a religious Ph.D. at a secular university. He was almost entirely done completing his Ph.D., became a Christian, and started his work over again because his work was principally about rejecting the truth of the Christian faith. But when he embraced the Christian faith, he rejected all of the work that he had done so far and started over entirely. He was threatened by his supervisors that he would fail his Ph.D. process for not accepting the dogma of Harvard University, which rejected the supernatural understanding of the Bible. Well, he pursued his second Ph.D. anyway, under threat, and passed, he essentially did two PhDs at Harvard, but only graduated with one. 
And part of his coursework was teaching us the way people like to explain away the meaning of the Scriptures when it comes to a naturalistic worldview. So, for example, the Red Sea narrative of Israel crossing the Red Sea during the Exodus narrative of fleeing Egypt, there are some people who explain the Red Sea narrative where God parts the waters of the Red Sea with this very finely tuned Hebraic understanding of, well, you know, Red Sea could also be translated as reed sea, meaning seaweed sea. And the Israelites, they didn't pass through the waters. They walked over encrusted thick seaweed, obviously, because nobody walks through water. Don't you know that? Red Sea means reed sea because they walked on top of seaweed. See? That's called anti-supernatural bias that looks to explain away the obviously supernatural meaning of the text to justify a naturalistic worldview which is on a project to upend the clear meaning of Scripture. I'm saying all of that because there are those who come to the Bible and reject wholesale the notion that dead people come back to life. Right? People who don't believe in supernatural things don't believe in dead people living again. They, of course, reject the resurrection of Jesus. They don't believe in Jesus because they reject the concept of resurrection altogether. And they reject the many other places in the Bible that talk about dead people coming back to life. So to clarify, when I am touching the subject of Lazarus and asking resurrection or resuscitation, I am not engaging in the project of anti-supernatural bias like those who would say, well, you know, obviously Lazarus wasn't really dead. He was just in some sort of coma and Jesus was able to arouse him out of a coma because dead people don't come back to life. We know that. So the anti-supernatural bias reading of John 11 would say, I'm not saying that, but I am asking, when it comes to Lazarus's death and life, should we call it a resurrection or a resuscitation? And of course, why does it matter anyway? So, let's pray and read the text, and we'll see together. Father in heaven, we come now to your word, and we come now with thankful hearts that you give to us the scriptures as the testimony of eternal life in Jesus Christ and the power that is found in him. So, Lord, we thank you that we come to the scriptures, which are your special revelation to us, that we might know you and follow you and obey you and indeed believe your truth. So, Lord, Give us hearts to receive, minds to be engaged with the truth, and lives that are ready to commit ourselves to the obedience of the truth. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's read together from John 11, and uh, we'll be picking up at verse 38, uh, which is towards the conclusion of the narrative where uh, Lazarus has already died and Mary and Martha had sent notice to Jesus and he delayed his coming so that Lazarus would die. We pick up the reading where Jesus has already come and he encounters people in the midst of the grieving process just before he is about to raise Lazarus. So now hear the word of God, John 11 at verse 38. The word of God says, Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, 
Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Look back at verse 25 now and see Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. So may He write His eternal truth on our hearts today. Lazarus, uh, resurrection or resuscitation. Well, the Bible says that uh, by God's power, the dead can live. That is the Bible's testimony across both Old and New Testaments. Uh, if we were to spend an extended amount of time, I would take you, for example, to 1 Kings chapter 17, where Elijah, the prophet, brings back a widow's son from death under the power of God. Or 2 Kings chapter 4, where Elisha, Elijah's contemporary, Elisha the prophet brings back another child from the dead. It's interesting that in the context of the Scriptures, uh, children are most often uh, returned to life again. Uh, also, we find that God has the capability, of course, through His desired instrument, namely His prophets in the Old Testament, to restore life to the dead. Or we could go in the New Testament and find several examples. We think of Lazarus right away, and that's where we're going to spend our time. But we could go to Luke chapter 7, where Jesus raises the son of a widow. Or Luke chapter 8, where Jesus raises the daughter of Jairus, a Roman official. And it's not just Jesus and the prophets of Christ that raise the dead. It's also the apostles, like in Acts chapter 9, where Peter raises a little girl named Tabitha. Or in Acts chapter 20, where Paul raises a man named Eutychus, who falls asleep in a window during a long sermon and dies from the fall. <laughs> which is a warning to preachers who preach too long, that it might kill your congregation. Uh, but Paul is able to rouse from the dead Eutychus, who dies because of his long sermon. That God is, by His own power, able, through His desired instruments, to restore life to the dead. So, we're in the most famous one besides Jesus Himself, the most famous of these events, the raising of Lazarus. And we could take time to, to unpack these conventional details. I mentioned just the context, and I imagine that you're at least passing familiar with it, that uh, Mary and Martha are, are, are brother sisters to Lazarus, who is sick and who eventually passes away from his illness. And along the way, they had tried to tell Jesus, believing that if he would come, that they would, uh, Jesus would heal his brother and keep him from the power of the grave through his healing of the sick. Well, the sickness turns to death, and they asked Jesus if you would have been here. He wouldn't have died in the first place. But it's Jesus' intent to be delayed. That Lazarus come unto the power of the grave. So Jesus would display his power in the raising of Lazarus from the grave. And just as an aside, 
Uh, I'm going to preach this text in the funeral I'm doing this afternoon. Uh, but especially to parents and grandparents, there's a wonderful children's book about this narrative called Goodbye to Goodbyes. It's all about the power of Jesus and the power by which he raises the dead and uh, eliminates our need to say goodbye forever. It's a beautiful little book and just as a way of encouragement of a, an additional resource. But when we come to Lazarus and we find Jesus standing at Lazarus' tomb, he's really dead, right? He's so dead that the sister says, well, Jesus, don't roll back the stone. He's been dead four days. There's an odor, and I don't know how people with anti-supernatural bias get past that little detail because God has, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Apostle John record that Lazarus is so dead that he stinks, that his body is starting to decompose. He's actually dead. But when we find Jesus there at the graveside, the tombside to Lazarus, what we find is that the body that Lazarus is raised in is the same body which he was buried in because he's got the burial cloths on him. You see this detail right there. Uh, verse 44, the man who had died, his hands and his feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth, Jesus says, unwrap him. Unbind him and let him go. Because the same body in which he was buried is the same body in which he proceeds forth from the tomb. So, see this, the same body that died is the same body that came out of the tomb. Lazarus is, follow me, resuscitated. He is reanimated. He dies, truly, and comes back to life, truly. But what Lazarus experiences is not resurrection in the proper sense, it's resuscitation or reanimation. There is a difference between resurrection and resuscitation or reanimation. Resurrection refers to the putting on of the new glorified spiritual body, while reanimation or resuscitation means raising the person in the old mortal body in which they died. Not upgrading to the new model, in other words, but coming forth with the same body. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? I'm just curious if anybody's ever thought about this before. I've thinking about this quite a bit. It's interesting, isn't it? Why does this matter? Lazarus would have died again, wouldn't he? He would have died a second time. Amazing. Certainly, probably without the fear of death. You probably would have never met a man less afraid to die than the one who's already done it before. Lazarus is going to die again, but Jesus returns life to Lazarus' mortal body to demonstrate that Jesus is the one who has the authority to do so. So when he says in the narrative uh, earlier on in verse 25, I am the resurrection, it means that we don't look to Lazarus with all, but rather we look to Jesus with all for what Jesus can do. That Jesus himself is the resurrection because Jesus himself is the resurrected man, the first one. The first one. There are many people in the narrative of the Scripture, and I mentioned quite a few earlier on, who come back to life, but they're not resurrected, they're reanimated, they're resuscitated. It's not the same thing. 
Because resurrection means I die in this mortal body, this natural body, and I am raised from that natural state to a spiritual state where the perishable puts on the imperishable and the corruptible puts on the incorruptible. So Paul explains. This is why the resurrection of Jesus is so important because Jesus' resurrection is the first true actual resurrection. Jesus is, in this sense, the true and better Lazarus, we could say. Think about it. Think about it like this. There are so many wonderfully unique categories and uniquenesses to Jesus' resurrection body. When you read the Gospels in what we call the post-resurrection narratives, where Jesus has already been raised and he's back on earth for 40 days before the ascension and he's talking to the disciples, there are all sorts of really strange things that happen that we can't quite understand except for the fact that he's been raised, right? So, for example, isn't it interesting that people so often fail to perceive Jesus as Jesus? In John chapter 20, in the garden, Mary mistakes him for a gardener. Mary had known Jesus all those years, and she lays eyes on him on Easter morning and thinks he's the guy who tends the roses rather than Jesus. She should know, but she doesn't see at first. Why? Or in Luke 24, when the disciples are walking several miles with Jesus, they're walking and talking to Jesus, not realizing that it's Him. They're just saying, oh, have you heard about Jesus? He died and we're really upset, etc. They don't know that they're talking to Him. Jesus in John 20 is able to enter through uh, locked doors. In Luke 24, He essentially disappears from amidst a crowd that uh, seeks to overwhelm Him and he just, He's just gone. His unique properties of his post-resurrection body are because it's a resurrection body. In fact, every post-resurrection account of Jesus speaks to him doing ministry, teaching, meeting with people, talking to people. Pre-resurrection experiences of Jesus seem to emphasize his incredible humanity where he's eating, he's sleeping, he's resting, he's tired, but there's no talk of any of that post-resurrection because it seems that his resurrection body doesn't need to sleep, eat, where he ascends into heaven in Acts chapter 1, and all of these unique properties of Jesus' resurrection body because it's an actual resurrection body. And what explains the uniqueness of that is that it's just that. No longer the fleshly mortal body. The humanity is then raised in glory, and his body is a resurrection body. So why does this matter so much? This is not just one of these like theological navel-gazing type of minute details that why does this matter anyway? This matters, what happens to Lazarus and ultimately what is true of Jesus, because you need to know, as a Christian believer, what is true of resurrection and what is true of Jesus' resurrection and the promise of your resurrection in Him. So if you're in John, turn right in the New Testament to 1 Corinthians 15 as we go into 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul talks about this very thing, the, the unique properties of the resurrection body, which seems so mysterious and wonderful because we're on this side of that body. We're on this side of heaven and we're on this side of the new heavens and new earth and what we have is only by way of revelation where we can kind of peer through a glass dimly and see the glories but not able to make out all the contours. There's a wonderful mystery to this, and yet there are definitely things that we know. 
Here's why all this matters so much. Yes, of course, because Jesus' resurrection assures our victory in Him and the forgiveness of our sins, sins in Him. Jesus died for our sins, and by His resurrection, the Father justifies Christ to say, you are innocent and raised, and if you're trusting in Jesus, your sins are forgiven in Him. And so the resurrection is all about the forgiveness of your sins, for sure. But it's not just about that. The resurrection is all also about that everything that is true about Jesus in his resurrection is what will be true of you as a Christian believer one day. That's how you should think about Jesus and his resurrection, that what is true about him will be true of me in union with him one day. That's what Paul is saying. When he says in 1 Corinthians 15 at verse 35, someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? What's the resurrection body like is what Paul is explaining in 1 Corinthians 15 in the remainder of this chapter in which he goes into great detail about the doctrinal principle of resurrection and the details of the resurrection body itself. And he first illustrates the fact that, look, you know how this works because God has written it into nature. You sow the seed into the ground and the seed brings forth the fruit from the seed that's like the seed but a different kind from the seed. You put the watermelon seed in the ground and it springs forth the fruit that produces the watermelon, but the watermelon doesn't look like the seed. But it's from a similar type, but a different kind. So Paul says, you have a mortal body. You have a physical body. You have a natural body. You have an earthly body. And that body is going to perish and be put in the ground. One way or the other, cremation, burial, what have you, but this mortal frame is going to return to the dust, the Bible says. And when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised. And what will come forth from the grave is like what went in, but a different type. So, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, look at verse 42, for example. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. Sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last man, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, then the spiritual. Paul is explaining this as he says, just as, in verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so also we shall bear the image of the man of heaven. So this body, this natural body that is sown in weakness and it is sown naturally in this earthly body is the body in which you experience all manner of difficulty. Don't you? The creaking and the aching and the eyes don't see and the ears don't hear and it's susceptible to disease. And this body that has to be told, you have cancer. And this body that, that my organs break down and they fail to function and I need surgery and this needs to be taken out of me and I need this put into me and my arteries need to be unclogged and all the rest. This natural frame, 
Paul says, is what is weighed down by the weight of our mortality in this natural life. Paul is explaining it here in 1 Corinthians 15, but I always love the way Ecclesiastes talks about it in almost this kind of nagging, antagonistic way. He says, the doors of the street became shut and the sound of the grinding is low. He also goes on to say, you become afraid of what is high and the terrors that are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, meaning your hair goes white or you lose your hair. The grasshopper drags itself along. The grasshopper stops hopping about and drags itself along. Do you feel like the grasshopper that's dragging yourself along? Desire fails because man is about to go to his eternal home and the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped and the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the foundation or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was given and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. Paul is saying on the other side in 1 Corinthians 15, this mortal frame breaks down, wears down, wears out, and decomposes. But... Paul says also, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the sound of the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised, Paul says. There in 1 Corinthians at verse 53, for this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. What he's saying here is that there's coming a day for you, Christian believer, when you will no longer be subject to the weight of your mortal frame and your aching knees and your blinding eyes and your body that is stricken with every manner of disease in this fallen world that gives us great pain. 1 Corinthians 15 is usually the text that I have in mind walking into difficult situations, if you know what I mean. Difficult hospital rooms. Difficult places of mourning to say, there's going to come a day soon when you will throw off the weight of this mortal frame that gives you so much pain. And Paul says, verse 54, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Whose victory? Christ's. Who by His resurrection has made it for you to be raised in Him with a new body. So our doctrine of resurrection means that the grave is nothing but the bed for the Christian believer where their natural body is laid to rest. Resting in the sleep of the grave until the day, Paul says, when the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ will be raised because you wake up when you go to sleep. That's what happens. You go to sleep and you wake up. So too for the Christian believer in death, our body sleeps because our body wakes, or we call it resurrection, and in Christ the dead will be raised the uniqueness of Jesus' resurrection as the first resurrection means that Lazarus was not resurrected in John chapter 11. He was resuscitated. But one day, Lazarus will be resurrected. Just like you 
when you put your trust in Jesus, will be also raised on the day when the trumpet shall sound and the dead in Christ will be raised. And as Paul says, O death, where is your victory? Because the victory belongs to Jesus. And you share in it when you trust in Him. What a beautiful thing, isn't it? To be raised in glory with Christ. May that be true of all of us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the Scriptures and the unending interests that they are to us where we can learn Your truth. So, Father, bless Your people with confidence and fill our hearts with joy in the knowledge of Christ resurrected for us and we with Him in His glory. Lord, bless us in this truth, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.